think everyone's here. Okay. <clears throat> so in the particular style of practice we've been offering here, <clears throat> we've been speaking about how the steadiness of mindfulness, of awareness, sets is the condition for wisdom to arise in the heart, in the mind. And when wisdom arises, it's wisdom <clears throat> that does the work of freeing uh, habits of our mind, of freeing us from uh, confusion, from suffering. <clears throat> so I want to hopefully um, give something, try and explain how that works a little bit using steady awareness of the idea of impermanence, how wisdom into really understanding this aspect of impermanence, this aspect of all existence arises. I mean, all of the path, all of the different techniques that may be offered, not only here, but I think in all aspects, at least of Buddhist practice that I'm familiar with, they may come from different angles, um, accentuate different aspects of our experience, but they're all in service of releasing the habits of our heart and mind from the obsessive um, relationship to objects and experience, from the suffering of wanting and aversion and confusion that arises from this obsessive reaction and feeds it. So it's like, you know, a chicken and the egg kind of thing. It just keeps going. So all the aspects of practice are to, to help us see through Wisdom, when it recognizes the, the fallacy, the, the sense that this clinging, this aversion, this confusion is based on inaccurate understanding, then the wisdom less allows it to basically drop away, evaporate. So I want to just speak a little about, in my mind it's explaining it. <laughs> we'll see if it explains it at all to you, <laughs> but at least gives some examples talking, as um, Steve said at the end of his talk last night, uh, talking, he was talking about seeing, you know, the steady awareness with these strong torments of heart and mind. But that same process of steady, non-judging, non-engaged, non-involved awareness is what brings our heart mind the wisdom to see, to understand the aspects of impermanence, of out of control, anatta, not self, and of the unreliability. The three aspects of all conditioned phenomena, recognizing that accurately isn't depressing. You know, it frees us from reacting and responding and trying to make ourselves happy in a way that completely doesn't work because we're misperceiving the world. So I want to just use um, anicca or impermanence as a kind of a jumping off place to talk about this. From the Buddha, bhikkhus. Bhikkhus is a Pali word for monks, but it really it means anyone who's engaged in practice. So it's us. Bhikkhus, <clears throat> when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sensual lust, it eliminates all lust for becoming, for getting, for becoming another existence, it eliminates all ignorance, it uproots all conceit I am. So those things, that's like a, a description of a completely awakened person who's no longer caught in the grips of self-involvement, of greed, of aversion. So to me, that's an incredibly powerful statement. When the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated. So if you turn it around, it's kind of saying when we don't perceive impermanence, then that leads to this habit of lusting for sense pleasures, of trying to become something different, something better, uh, the sense of self that feeds the sense of I am. So how can just this perception of impermanence have such a powerful effect? To me, hopefully not just to me, um, this is pointing to 
This perception of impermanence is pointing to the nature of insight. The nature of, when we talk about understanding, insight understanding, it's really about a shift of perception. It's not that when there's insight, somehow we understand, say, well, I'll just stick with impermanence. There could be insight into all kinds of things, into personal experiences in your life. You know, you're sitting and some problem in your life is going on and suddenly, aha, you see it in a different way. You know what I mean? And you go, oh, some, another way to deal with it I hadn't thought about. That's a shift of perception. So what the Buddha is saying with this is not that when there's deep insight, understanding, the world has changed. When he woke up, when the Buddha awoke under the Bodhi tree, free from suffering in his mind, in his heart, he didn't wake up into a different world. It's the same old world with the same old problems, same old people running around doing the same old stupid things. And so, not always. Also nice things, also compassionate things, but the same world, you know? And so when we um, talk about the awakening, the insight that comes through our steady practice, it's not that we become different. It's that the perception becomes accurate. It aligns with how things actually are. This is really the shift that is insight. You know, um, simple example, you know those visual things, they used to have books called The Magic Eye where it would, you know, you could have all these just uh, blocks of color that didn't look like anything. And if you, if you looked at it with a steady, steady gaze, but soft, not trying to see, at some point, all of a sudden, uh, like an image would jump out like 3D soccer players or something like that. You know what I mean? And it's still just the same blocks. And if you, if you then you'd go to the next page and you think, well, let me see the 3D soccer players and you're looking for it hard, you don't see it. You have to just relax, but be steady. If you look and relax and then look away and then come back, it doesn't work either. But once you've seen the 3D soccer players in there, even then the next time you look right away, you don't see it, but you know it was there, right? Because you saw it, you know it was there. So there's these two ways of perceiving and in a way they both have their accuracy. But if you never saw the 3D soccer player, like for instance, my mother, we were in a mall one time and they had big posters of this and she just couldn't see it. It was driving her crazy, you know? She's like, come on, come on. And and the tighter she got, of course, the harder it was to see it because she's like bugging her eyes out trying to see, relax, Ma, relax. (laughs) She never did see it. So (laughs) that's how it is with us and impermanence a lot of the time. So this is the real powerful level of insight, the level of perception. So perception, we've talked about it, right? Just that simple recognition of of, um, a sense experience happening in every mind moment. Useful. It's, It's just neutral, but it's extremely useful. If we didn't have perception, you know, you'd walk in, first of all, why would you walk into, you hear the bell ring and you'd go, what's that sound? What does it mean? What am I supposed to do now? Where am I? You know, what the heck is going on? So perception is extremely helpful. And the second there's perception, the whole world arises around it. You know, it's like there's what we perceive, this is from the Buddha, we think about. And what we think about, then often we complicate with, you know, associations and memories and complications. This is when we get off. But so it all starts with perception and that's extremely useful. But as uh, Dingo Kensey said, when the sense organs encounter an object, so a sound, for example, in the ear, the only part the object itself plays is to initiate the process of perception in your consciousness. From then on, as your mind reacts to the object, influenced by all your accumulated habits and past experiences, the whole process is entirely subjective. 
So when your mind is full of anger, the whole world seems to be a hell realm. Have you ever noticed that? When your mind is peaceful, when your heart is peaceful, free from clinging or fixation or reactivity, then and what you experience everything as primordially pure. And the thing is, pretty much, until we start really exploring this, the tendency is we believe our perceptions. We think this is really how it is. I'll give a simple example. I was with a friend at her house, and um, there was like a, just a blanket thrown over the back of the couch. And I said something, oh, could you hand me that blue blanket? She says, what blue blanket? That blue blanket on the back of your couch. She says, that's not blue, that's green. And we both, you know, I could not, I could not see it as green. She could not see it as blue. Luckily, that's pretty benign, right? <laughs> I mean, we didn't like come to blows or have an argument or, you know, whatever, but it's really interesting to see. There wasn't too much further to go with that. But to see how, how quickly the whole world can come up, the, the, it was a great example Alexis gave the other day when he was uh, meditating in Burma and he heard that sound. And really the accurate perception was he didn't really know, didn't really know what it was. But when the one perception would be the sound outside and all the responses and the reactions of mine and the, and the, the compassion for the poor workers suffer, all of that, that's all the, uh, what we perceive, we think about, what we think about, we complicate based on our experience, right? And if we don't question it, we think this is really what's happening. And then it's so fun to be able to shift to the, uh, no, it's the guy snoring, that guy's snoring, how could he, uh, and a whole different fierce series of thoughts. The thoughts lead to reactions, to moods, how we respond to the world. If, you know, if the guy had, if, if they'd been talking, Alexis might have turned around and said, wake up, you're wasting the world, you're wasting your life, wake up. But luckily, we're in silence. And <laughs> that's why we're in silence here, folks. <laughs> But so, perception is really powerful, and the whole world comes out just like that. I had written down here, I'd forgotten it, but um, I was teaching at, I teach at Spirit Rock every year. It was a couple years ago. I was down in the, in the staff place where the staff eats, and there's like all bookshelves around and all books lying around there. And I, I picked up a, a Dharma book that I was looking for something in it, Oh, great. And I found a little note in, in, in this book. You know, the, it had been lying around for years. I picked the note and read and said, wow, that's my handwriting. <laughs> this is right in the place I was looking for. And so I was like, oh, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> Some things don't change. But <laughs> the sense of just looking at it and seeing my handwriting in a flesh, this whole sense of me and my life and my past and teaching, it just came up like that, you know? Sense of self, my whole history, Carol, it's like a whole blanket of self came up. Just the perception of, of seeing, you know, uh, pencil on paper, well, it was. So it's just so interesting, with steady awareness, we, we watch how this process works. Nothing right or wrong, we just really watch how it works. Without the steady awareness, we can so easily get caught in just uh, totally believing our perceptions, no? So, back to perception of impermanence and to the aspect of insight. You know, we, I, I don't know whether we've mentioned, but it's in the suttas, but Utejaniya talks about it frequently, where the Buddha spoke about three levels of wisdom, three levels of understanding. Have we mentioned that here? No, I'm going to mention it again anyway. Um, they're all useful, and we kind of bounce back and forth between them, but it, but it explains why we think we know something, but it doesn't really change how we live our life. So the first level is called Sutta Mayapanya, and it's really heard wisdom. When Steve was talking about right view the first night and, and saying from the Sutta, the Buddha said the first thing you need is to, to hear, hear it somehow, heard wisdom. So say we're ta I'm talking about impermanence, we've read about impermanence, we all can go, yeah, we hear that, everything's changing. So that's like heard wisdom. 
And we may or may not believe it, but even when we do, it's still on that level. The second, but it's something. So when, again, when Steve was talking about injecting right view, sometimes even on that level, it can help. If I'm in the middle of an experience, a strong emotion, really caught in it, and I can remind myself, right, this is an emotion. In that moment, I'm still really caught in it, but I'm injecting that first level of wisdom, heard wisdom, which reminds me still, it's an emotion. This isn't like the whole world. The second level, from that first level, it's like it's called chintamayapan. It's like we really think about it. We use our intelligence. We maybe explore it. You're kind of noticing in your life. So in terms of impermanence, the first level that things are changing, probably, I think probably you wouldn't argue with that. Would anyone here argue with that? You wouldn't dare. But so this is why I think I wanted to pick impermanence to talk about because on the level of the first level of wisdom, it's the most obvious one. We think, yeah, we know everything's changing. So why are you talking about it? It's this big insight that can free our heart and mind if we perceive it. We think, I know it. But it's just that first level that doesn't change anything. The second level is really, as I say, thinking about it, analyzing it, you kind of mull it over, think, yeah, you you start to notice things, you you can go outside, well, the sun's setting, it's impermanent. You know, it's kind of like you're thinking that. You're consciously trying to notice, for example, that's one way. And it's going in a little deeper. And this is important, Uh, kind of bringing it up, it might make us inquire, it might give us the energy to keep cultivating awareness, but it's still... You think, well, okay, I'm really getting it. I'm noticing every day the sun goes down, every morning it comes back again. I notice, you know, people are wearing different clothes today and, you know, some days your hair's different, a good hair day, a bad hair. You notice these things, unless you have no hair then. But um, (laughs) you're saved from that. But you have to shave every day, then that's a drag too. Um, but, But somehow it doesn't really change stuff. The third level, Bhavanamayapan, is really insight level wisdom. And that's the level where our perception, not just our thinking about it, but the moment-to-moment spontaneous perception actually shifts, comes into alignment. You could say, in a way, we cellularly know, even just for a moment, that nothing is static for one fraction of a second. And I can say that, and I've experienced that in the past, I'm not experiencing that right now. So I can say that that's the second level. But once you, uh, in in different ways, it can go in in a lot of different ways, that there's a shift of perception where impermanence is really perceived on that immediate level, not thinking your way into it. You can't think your way into it. The perception shifts. Of course, then it shifts back like those magic eye things, but knowing it, having experienced cellularly in in lots of different ways, it changes something. You know somehow the perception that we don't even realize we're perceiving not change. You know, we don't even recognize that. That's what I'm going to talk about. But on some level, it shifts. And we know something in a cellular way that we didn't before. That's the third level of insight. Insight isn't like a, like intellectual knowledge. It's 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 an understanding, you could say. It's not like knowing information. Those are the first two levels, but it's an understanding that just happens. And then, that's in that perception that has arisen from an accurate. It's more being accurately aligned with how things are. Then what we perceive, we think about, what we think about can be complicated, it hardens into view. Instead of the the perception being uh, off, actually a misperception, leading to uh, thoughts and views that are not in alignment with how things really are, that takes us way away, the perception's accurate. And this is really when the perception matches experience, then how we think about things, the response, the, re- the response to the, ex- to the experience, to the situation is appropriate. So what happens, the wisdom abandons the strategy of clinging. 
in the face of the perception of impermanence, not because it's bad, but because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, when you see the sun going down, do you like break out in tears? Oh, maybe you really, because it's beautiful, that's a different kind of tears, okay. But if you see the sun going down, you're like, oh no, oh no, oh my God, it's gone. <laughs> maybe if you're in a certain mood, but mostly probably not, huh? Because it doesn't make any sense, right? The thought doesn't even really arise, it just doesn't make sense. Well, that's how it works. You know, it's not like a, wow, everything's impermanent. It's like, oh, just the clinging doesn't arise. And we're just really present, just so aligned with how things are. It's not that we don't care about things. We're actually able to, to care. Care and attachment aren't the same thing. You know, so when we're not attached to, I need the sun, and it's just, okay, it's beautiful. It's gone. Now it's like this. That's got its own beauty. It can just be so present when, when the clinging isn't there. But it's not something we can talk ourselves into. So what allows for, what sets the conditions for this shift of perception, guess what? What could it possibly be <laughs> that sets the condition, right? the steady awareness that we've been talking about. Not looking for impermanence, not looking for anything. But this, well, we've talked about it nonstop. I don't have to say it again, but I will. Just the the sense of this, this is settling into, relaxing into, it's like this now. It's like this now. But steady, steady, steady. Without a supposition, without an assumption of what, it should be, then the, the truth of things reveals itself over and over and over. So why is it so complicated? Does it seem complicated? Why is it? It's so clear. Everything's changing all the time. It's so clear. Obviously, it isn't so clear. Or we'd all be free. Why is it not so clear? You know. So I just want to talk a little bit then about these habits of mind, the same that Steve was talking about in, the, in all their full blooming mess into a little more subtle way that they show up. So what blocks the accurate perception, put it that way. So it is, of course, our old friends, visitors, but they're there a lot. The three, the big three, greed, hatred, and delusion, right? Those are the big three. So delusion, confusion, greed, or that tendency to cling, and resistance, fear, aversion, those three. This is how I want to talk about it in terms of impermanence and perception. The three ways it shows up. One way that the habits in in the heart-mind of relating to experience that come up, the habits in, in terms of change, in terms of things changing and going away. The first is that of denial, avoiding, leading into clinging. And I'll talk a little bit about that. So that's basically resistance and clinging to change. A kind of block or just the clear perception. Oh, yeah, this is gone now. Another one is the um, misperception, recognizing wrongly the inaccurate perception. And the third is inattention. Lack of steady attention feeds the perception of permanence. So i just talk a little bit about each of those. So the first one, big the kind of denial. Denial that things change. Do you ever have any experience of that at all? Or when something changes and there's the feel, well, this shouldn't be happening. Or something changes, even there's a, um, a sutta, Asaji, who was a very uh, well-practiced monk at the time of the Buddha, and he'd had um, good practice, good concentration and all, and he's basically in this, or he's dying, okay? He's sick and he's dying. And he's coming to the Buddha, and the, and the Buddha hears that he's really upset, that he's really feeling that he's falling away, that he feels a lot of remorse and fear, 
And the Buddha comes to him and says, well, what's, what's the problem? Are you feeling remorse and fear? Have you been harming yourself or other? Have you been breaking the precepts? He goes, no, not at all. He said, well, then what's the matter? And he said, well, Asaji goes, well, formerly, when I would be meditating, when I'd be paying attention, I'm paraphrasing, I don't suit in front of you. I could really achieve stability of mind, concentration of mind, steadiness of mind, but now I can't. When I try to do it, I can't, and I'm afraid I'm just going to fall away. And the Buddha says, basically, hello. <laughs> the situation, basically, you're dying. Your energy, your physical experience is completely different from how it was before. The conditions that were present when you could easily get really concentrated are not present now. It's not that you're falling away. And besides, concentration focusing isn't the liberating aspect of the path anyway. So it's not about that. But even someone with you know, as much understanding as Asishi, and he had the Buddha around besides, you know, to help him. We're like, you know, floundering around on our own. He at least had the Buddha. And still, you know, there's the sense, wow. Just kind of not noticing. Completely different conditions are here. Of course the effect is different <laughs> than when it was before. Have you ever noticed here you have one, one day you go for a walk in the woods and they're so clear and present and mindful. And, uh, so the next day, what do you do? You go walk in the woods at the same time with the same idea that it's going to be clear and present and mindful, and it's not. You trip over roots, everything's a mess, you know, the black flies are out, you're filled with aversion, and it's raining, it's like, what the heck happened? I had it, I had it, I knew, and it's gone, you know? I blew it. Okay, that's... I'm not really exaggerating that much, am I? <laughs> yes, it's a shame, but <laughs> that's how it is. And we don't really notice. It's a completely different set of experiences. You're not the same person even, and everything else is different. Okay, these are simple examples, but denial. I read, a, I read an article, a little snippet in a newspaper years ago from some little town in Spain where it said the mayor of this little town said, the cemeteries are completely full. There's no room to bury anyone else. So he sent out a memo to the people in the town that nobody should die until, until they could find more cemetery space. Okay, major denial, I would say. That was major denial. But the denial comes a lot, one of the ways it comes, the denial is, is I feel that in my experience, the habit that's so deeply ingrained, one of them in all of us, is this habit of resistance to unpleasant experience and leaning into the pleasant, which leads to not even noticing than neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And this is something that I think, well, I could give a whole talk about it, I've got to condense this to two minutes. But I, I think this is the genius, one of the geniuses things of the Buddha, where he says, and this is I th really clear in his teachings, that all these sense door experiences we're having, seeing, smelling, tasting, thinking, whatever the six are, <laughs> you, you know them, you're experiencing them all day, constantly changing, right? Whenever one arises, just like sanya, perception arises quite naturally in the mind, what also arises is that each experience, say a sound, is experienced in a mind as having a quality of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. It's quite quick and quite subtle. It's not inherent in the sound right? It's again conditioned how it's perceived in our particular mind stream. So this sound, one time it could be pleasant in your mind, another time it could be neutral or unpleasant. It might be pleasant for you in that moment and unpleasant for you. It's not inherent, but it's just another mental experience. But that that's happening with every sense door experiences of all six senses. To me it's a genius because I never would have noticed that if I hadn't read about it, if I hadn't practiced and gotten in the habit of looking at it. 
And so he says, in the not noticing, and this is really what's so brilliant, in the not noticing of that, anyway, the habit comes in the not noticing. He says, what's the difference between an awakened person and an unawakened person? Both types of people experience painful feelings, pleasurable feelings, and neutral feelings. We, we, it's the same. It's not that when you get awakened, all the unpleasant stuff stops. I would just like to say that again. <laughs> it doesn't stop. The same amount of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral keeps happening. So what's the difference? And he's saying, again, I'm shortening it, but he says the tendency is, in the, in the mind that when we're not recognizing even, it's, and he starts with the unpleasant. We don't recognize unpleasant experience, so say a physical unpleasant experience, then when we don't recognize that the tendency of the unawakened person is as if they were shot by an arrow, sticks you in the leg. And on top of that, he says you, you yell and scream and beat your breast and pull your hair and lament. Those are the language. So basically we get all upset because it hurts, right? Can you relate to that so far? Yeah, yeah, a little bit right. So it's as if we shoot ourselves with a second arrow. So then that goes on and that just seems normal. I mean, it is normal, it's unfortunately, it's our habit. Then it becomes a tendency, a habit underlies the mind of resistance to unpleasant experience. That just feels normal. And then in the light of the unpleasant experience, the only way, so the only escape, a worldling, someone who doesn't really see clearly, the only escape we know from unpleasant feeling is to go try and get a pleasant feeling. So we lust after pleasure. We move away from unpleasant and go look for something pleasant. Again, can you relate to this at all? Even little. I'm not saying good or bad. You're saying this becomes the habit. And so then underlying the mind becomes the habit of craving for pleasant. And so you don't realize, as it really is, the nature of what's going on or the nature of the feelings themselves. They come, they go, they just last for a second. But in a way, we're putting all our eggs in the basket of getting more pleasant feeling, and that's gonna make me happy. This is where the whole dynamic of craving for pleasant and pushing away unpleasant, where it arises. And it's so deeply in us. Can you relate so far? I mean, it's just so deeply in us. Not saying good or bad. I mean, if you had a choice, you can tell the difference between pleasant and unpleasant. And neutral, maybe you would notice neutral once in a while. And he's not saying, who cares? You can tell the difference. If you had a choice, you wouldn't go for the unpleasant. But so often, I mean, this is arising in every moment, when we don't know it, we're just on this ping pong back, get me away from that, go to this. And the whole way then that we tend to the perception of what's good and what's bad tends to be based on what's pleasant and what's unpleasant. Check it out. If you're having a good sitting, it's rare, unless you've really been playing with this for a long time, it's rare that there was a lot of unpleasant stuff going on. Right? Usually, it was pleasant. As you go on and on, though, and as mindfulness, awareness gets stronger, awareness doesn't need to be touched. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, equal. Awareness can meet it equally. When we can start to take refuge in the steady awareness, rather than taking refuge in running away from unpleasant and needing to get more pleasant, that's been our refuge so much, you know, even just to the point of, I don't know, you're a little bored, you go to the refrigerator, pick up the phone, talk to, none of the, the things are bad, the things aren't bad necessarily, but just watch. I'll talk more about tomorrow morning, but watch as you go through the day. How much of what we pick is to have more pleasant feeling? Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was a great Thai meditation master, forest monk, um, he died in the late 1990s. But he said, just first, just notice pleasant feeling, how ephemeral a feeling tone just lasts like that, you know? And then just kind of contemplate all the decisions you've made in your life. How many of them have been based on moving towards more pleasant feeling? 
He says his guess was 95%. Now, he's not saying bad, it's just that we're, we're giving pleasant feeling a power it doesn't have to make us happy. And in terms of our, our understanding what's like right or wrong, good and bad, it's so based on pleasant and unpleasant. So back to the denial of change. So often when something beautiful or someone we love, you know, dies or goes away or something that's important to us changes or our body changes or we get sick or, you know, your car gets wrecked or even down to, you know, you didn't get the second piece of pizza. I mean, it can be from really life-changing to little, but let's go big. It brings up a lot of sadness, you know, a lot of grief often. Especially when someone we love dies, it brings up grief. And grief and sadness are pretty unpleasant. And if we're not aware, if we don't have steady mindfulness, the habit is to try and move away from that, to not be at ease with just resting at ease in in the sadness, you know. And even deep underneath it, almost uh, 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 sometimes unconscious... um, interpretation, something's wrong because I feel sad, right? This shouldn't be happening in some way. Even though we we all know everything ends and everyone gets sick and everyone dies. We all know that. But as if when we feel grief about it, there's something wrong. And there's a subtle like moving away, let's not look at it, let's not look at it. So for me, I feel like you know, grief, sadness, if we can open to that as part of life. You know, it's not that, oh yes, she will not be seen by me again. I mean, the Buddha could say that maybe. But for me, when someone I love is gone, there's a a deep sadness. But we don't have to be in denial either there's something wrong with us or something wrong with that situation. It's like this now. And being able to just with gentle awareness, just sadness is like this. Grief is like this, it's part of being human. You know, it's a sign of love, the love really in some ways. So then we don't have to like go into denial, try and resist, try and go crave, you know, that's the other thing, we go the the resistance to the unpleasant and then the craving for the pleasant, you know, okay, let me go party so I don't have to feel unhappy. This is kind of weird, but I, I just read this headline yesterday uh, about <laughs> the, English, the English royal family. Okay, not like I follow them so much, but I just read this headline about Prince Harry, you know, whose, whose ma- mother, Princess Diana, died all those years ago, right? So he was just saying how when she died, I guess he was 12 or something, and he just basically pretended like nothing had happened in some way, he just couldn't deal. So he's now he's speaking out for mental health, he's in his late 20s or something. But he said for years and years and years, up until just a few years ago, he just said, well, okay, that happened, boom, now everything's fine and I'm gonna play and be a boy and fly planes and do all this stuff and everything's great. And that's the other way of completely resisting. You know, not resisting, but go after pleasure and just pretend this never happened. Until now, you know, the stuff starting, he's starting to get in touch with the grief and the sadness and he has to learn how to be with it. That it's quite okay. It's part of life. There's a lovely story again in the suttas when the Buddha was dying. You know, he announced he was going to die in three months or something. And his attendant, Ananda, who had been his attendant for 25 years, his cousin, very close. And if you haven't read any of the Buddhist suttas and you do, Ananda is like this really lovable human character. He humanizes things. He's not perfect. He makes mistakes. He's very friendly. He's always trying to help people get access to the Buddha. You can't help but like Ananda. So, um, I mean, a lot of the other, a lot of the other guys and some of the nuns too, they're kind of, you know, kind of remote, but Ananda feels really human. Um, so, so the Buddha's announced this and then he's giving a Dhamma talk to a bunch of monks and he looks around and he goes, where's Ananda? And it turned out Ananda, they went and found him. Ananda had gone to his, his hut and 
and Andy Olinsky, who was the director of the study center for many years, a poly scholar, he tells me this is a famous, um, uh, famous artistic rendering of Ananda. He was standing in, in his doorway, just leaning against the doorpost and weeping and weeping and saying, oh, what's going to become of me, my teacher, who's been so compassionate to me? He's going away. What will I do without him? So this image of Ananda's grief, you know, is very famous. And of course the Buddha calls him back, Ananda, haven't I told you? (laughs) Everything that comes together goes apart. You know, all conditions change. But with so much compassion, not you stupid jerk, but with total, total love and compassion, you know. But I love that because it's like, this is human. It's our conditioning. And if we can really understand there's pleasant, there's unpleasant, neutral, we don't need to run from the unpleasant. When we just, it's like this now. It's unpleasant, but we're present, we're alive, we're whole, we're really, you know, completely in tune with this is how it is in this moment. And it again will change. It's not like, oh, I know I'm sad now and then it'll change. That's a resistance. Just, it's like this now. And it will change. So when we notice that resistance, let it, let it be a wake-up call. And then it's not that a, that we not only don't stop caring, we're really much more present, more free to respond in an appropriate, kind, compassionate way. So just, that's one way I think, that perception of impermanence isn't perceived, isn't seen, because we're lost in that reactivity of a fear of the unpleasant going for the pleasant and thinking that's the only, that's just the natural response. It's steady awareness that lets us see through that. And that that simple willingness to just, as the Tibetans say, rest at ease in whatever arises. So if what we're saying is just relax. God is, it's like this now. You don't have to think about the past, the future, just this moment. It's like this now. And the way things really are shows itself. The Buddha said at one point, The search for a resting place is burning. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. I love that. Cool and peaceful, kind of neutral. When we're still in the, you know, the wanting the pleasant away from the unpleasant, cool and peaceful sometimes isn't so attractive. So see where you are with that. So that's, that's one way to start to notice how impermanence, the perception of impermanence gets blocked. The second level where we misperceive, where we actually are perceiving something, we, we even intellectually on the first level, we might think we're seeing it is impermanent. We see something, we see its beginning, and then we see it ends. So say we say everything's impermanent. This retreat had a beginning, and soon it's going to have an end, maybe not soon enough for some of you in a particular mood. And another mood, you might say, oh, I could do this forever. And five minutes later, it's like, please, God, get me out of here. You know? And we tend not to notice how <laughs> that changes. But it has a beginning, it has an end. We go, oh, I see change. But what we don't notice, the misperception is, we're not noticing the momentariness of change. I remember I was hearing a, a talk by the Dalai Lama one time where he really accented this. He said, we see something arise. Then it exists for a while and then it passes away. He said, wait a minute, come back. This exists for a while? No. No. There's no existing for a while. Everything is changing momentarily. And this perception of, oh, it's like this and then it's going to change. I, this has been my life and I've been like this for 66 years and at some point I'm going to die, so I know there's change. But my perception might be, you know, even though I, I look pretty different from how I looked when I was five years old, you know, every day is different, but we don't notice that so much. So we have the intellectual we're perceiving impermanence, but we're not. We're seeing this steadiness and then we're really surprised when suddenly it ends. So that's a misperception. Endings take us by surprise. The Buddha said once, he picked up a little bit of dirt underneath his fingernail and he said, 
There's not even this much of form of mind that is permanent, that is stable, that is not subject to change and that will remain the same. Not even this much. He said, if there was even this much form, mind, perception, anything that was this permanent, this living of the holy life for the complete destruction of suffering could not be seen. But there isn't even that much that's stable, that's permanent. We don't like that too much. The, the mind that's looking for ease, we, it, that this habit of looking for ease in the pleasant, in the comfortable, in the knowing how it is, you know, we tend to like that. I tend to like that. I want to settle down and just, you know, not be shaken up all the time. I want to rest at ease. Not in whatever arises. I want it to stop arising. I want it to just be kind of mellow and rest at ease. So there's that clinging that comes in, even to just a particular moment. We don't, we don't notice how it arises. The conditions are always changing. Someone was describing to me, I think this is a great example, you know, if you have, um, what, do you, what do you call it? When you have like, a, it's not slow motion, it's the other. So, so say a, a, a video of a plant growing, what do you call that? So, huh? Time lapse, yes, thank you. <laughs> Mind lapse. So, t- time, time lapse video, say, of just the dirt, and you see the plant growing, and it turns, the buds come, and the flower comes, and the leaves come, and the fruit come, and it all, and you, it just keeps going. There's no one moment that it's sta- stable. There's not like a moment you say, now this is the plant, now this is the flower. Now this is the but, it's always one thing morphing and transmuting into the next, into the next, into the next. There's no way you can extract something out and say it's discrete and it's just that. And even so, how can you separate the plant from the soil or the air or the sun or the water? Even if you're not seeing all of that, it's all coming together all the time. Same with us. I mean, that is the same with us, exactly. So on the actual visual level, walking through our daily life, we don't really visually see that so much. But sometimes in the quietness of meditation, when you're just sitting and feeling sensations, sometimes you can notice lots of sensations. Some of you have mentioned not just sensations, but the whole six sense doors. You know, they're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thinking, 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 sensation, and stuff's just coming, coming, coming. Someone said in a group, is it going to (laughs) stop? Like, no, (laughs) it's not going to stop. This is it. We start to see Sakaya, just the, the, the constant morphing, arising and passing, arising and passing every instant. This is what's going on in our life. When we're fighting it, you know, the search for a resting place, please, God, let it stop. There's times it feels like that. That's burning. That just, oh, it's like this now. And then the next, the next, it's like this now. There's the clinging, trying to stop it, trying to slow it down, trying to just make it be what it is for a certain amount of time. When that goes away, the sense of dissonance the sense of being at odds and contention with life with experience, that also is gone. And we can really respond in an appropriate manner with sensitivity, with tenderness, with seeing things the way they are rather than the way we wish they could be. And the third level, and this is really where the steady awareness comes in, where we, which supports the third level of delusion, of moha, which supports not recognizing impermanence, the perception, is inattention. So the steadiness, the continuity of awareness, the continuity of mindfulness is actually the tool, it's the tool that reveals life as it is. Nisargadatta Maharaj said, we miss the real by lack of attention and create the unreal by excess of imagination. I love that. So we're paying, you know, we're paying attention, we're really cultivating, and it's not in our power to be aware every moment, but the amount of um, 
clear aspiration and intention each of us is putting in. The fact that you're still here, that's how we know there's a deep commitment because, you know, if you're not really trying to do this cultivate awareness, it's pretty unbearable hanging out here, you know. (laughs) You know, you're just eating and you can't talk to anybody and there's nothing to do, it's, you know... (laughs) It's not really the way, what you choose. So we know, you know, plus we talk to you all every day too. And it's really quite inspiring. So the steadiness of awareness starts to reveal ways that we've been assuming permanence without realizing it. So one big way in our experience through the day, the sense of our personality, Sakaya Ditti, personality view. Steve was talking a little bit about this last where people say, oh, well, I'm so, I'm such an angry person, for example, you know. And you think about all the times you've been angry. And there's an assumption of permanence about that. Remembering the past, remembering the future, but not really a sensitive moment-to-moment-to-moment awareness. Because if we do that, we see there's no statement like that we can make that's really true, except for in this particular moment. A good friend was describing um, an experiment she did. She, I mean, she'd been practicing for a long time and she was working somewhere with other people. She was a cook and they were telling her, you know, you're such an aversive person. You're a real aversive personality and you're just aversive all the time. And she was like, yeah, I am an aversive person. I know I'm an angry person. But she said, let me, so she took one day to just just sit and not work and not be, said, I'm just gonna, just watch the mind, just watch what's coming up in the mind. And of course, this is how it's gonna be when you're just steady with it. She said, yeah, angry thoughts came up, a lot of them, but she said, maybe it was 10% of the day. There was plenty of moments of uh, appreciation, moments of just, you know, being neutral, being hungry. There was lots of generous moments in the heart and mind. There was lots of moments of love and compassion. How could I say I'm an angry person, you know? But think back on the day-to-day, you know? Or if you go to bed at night, do you ever go to bed at the end of the day and go, oh, well, this has been such a hard day. Or I've been sleepy all day. A lot of times people come in and say, I'm sleepy all day in an individual interview. I go, really? What about at lunch? Well, no, I wasn't sleepy then. <laughs> well, you were sleeping like every single sitting you were sleeping? No. When? Well, the sitting before breakfast I was sleepy. Yeah, and I, at four o'clock I was a little bit sleepy. Yeah, and, well, that was it. But without really the steady awareness, we, we make these assumptions and we think, well, I'm angry, like my friend. So even if it's not manifesting, we think it's under there, right? It's lurking. It's your true nature. It isn't showing up right now. Maybe I'm feeling compassionate, but that's, that's a scam. What's really under there is this angry, worthless person, right? And I know it's going to show up again. This is assuming permanence. <laughs> this is misperception. What's happening right now? This is really where we can start to trust the simplicity of awareness rather than our assumptions that we make about everything. So I'm just going to throw out some ways of noticing when you're assuming permanence like that. If you're relating to any experience that comes up in the day, oh no, how's it going to to be like this for the rest of the retreat? Have you ever had that thought? Whether it's a beautiful experience or a difficult one. Often it doesn't even last five minutes. You know, oh God, how am I going to get through the day feeling like this? Or a little twinge comes in your knee and it's like, oh my God, this is it for the rest of the retreat. I might as well hang it up. You know, and it doesn't even turn into anything. Notice how you relate to stuff like that. So when the steady awareness, you can start to see the habit of assuming permanence, fear, anxiety, self-doubt, projected into the future, brought up from the past, It's just a particular moment that we notice and highlight. Notice when you do that. Notice when you try to repeat a beautiful experience like I talked about going into the woods, where we think, oh, you just have to do that and that's how it's going to be. 
not seeing that the conditions are constantly changing. You, can, you, know, you can't step in the same river twice, you know? And the same person can't step in the same river twice because you're not the same person from one second to the next. We were talking, I think it was the last three-month course, uh, the five teachers of us would be together having dinner every night in the dining room. Then we realized we know each other for years. I mean, we know each other like 30 years. We know each other so well and we're having dinner, but every night it's different. We're each in a different mood. We've had different experiences. We come together as a team and we should think it's all the same. Every year it's different, you know, because we're never the same person. So all five of us are five different people with five different experiences. You can't have the same thing twice. So really noticing all the causes and conditions are constantly changing. Your physical, your mental, the environment. Also, when you're experiencing something difficult and you're waiting for it to go away, or something beautiful. Well, the beautiful ones you notice when they go, because you suffer. The difficult ones, say you're in anxiety, and then suddenly it's lunchtime, and you're having a nice lunch, and then you're thinking about this, and you're taking a walk, and then later you go, oh, I was so anxious before. What happened to it? You didn't notice it was gone. But when you do notice it is gone, take a moment to really, with awareness, register the goneness. To me, that's like really important. Not just, oh yeah, it's gone, that's fine, la 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 la. Register, it really isn't here. You know, not, not that idea, it's, it's under there somewhere, but I don't want to look for it because for sure I'll see it, I know it's there. Register, it really isn't here now. <laughs> it's like this now. It's really different and constantly changing. Let it in, conditions are always changing. Ajahn Chah had a great practice. He would just say um, to anything, going through the day, oh, and this is uncertain. That's all. This is uncertain. How we assume, you know, that, you know, we're going to talk, you assume I'm going to stop at 8.30? You don't know. (laughs) It's uncertain. (laughs) I don't know either. They're hoping, but... I got to talk fast. (laughs) But that it's it's more amazing that the schedule actually goes on as we think. You know, because this is uncertain. We never know. And we all know a million stories about sudden amazing things, horrible or beautiful things that happen. I'm not going to tell any, but just this. This is uncertain. I wonder, it says on the menu what lunch is going to be tomorrow, but this is uncertain. Maybe it'll be tempeh again. (laughs) It's uncertain. (laughs) Anyway. All right, I, I am going to stop at 8.30, you're lucky. Um, but, so the thing I want to say, these are just some ways that the perception of anicca, of impermanence, is blocked by the habits of mind, of misperception, delusion, not recognizing accurately, fed by the habits of greed, of clinging, and avoidance of unpleasant, from that deep, the deep, deep habits of not recognizing unpleasant, pleasant, and neutral. All of that seen through with the simple steadiness of moment-to-moment awareness. Not trying to see through, just the willingness to drop into this moment just as it is, free from expectation, free from judgment. That's what we're practicing. And that's what, to me, so beautiful about, not just the Dharma, about the way things are, when we recognize accurately what arises, it isn't like, oh, well, who cares? Everything's changing the hell with it, you know? It's like, and that's what often people are afraid of. If I really realize things are changing and I'm not attached, I won't care about anything. But it's just the reverse. Like I was saying with the sunset, the sense of when we're not afraid something's going to go, when we know it's going to go. So that, that the clinging doesn't come and we're free to just be fully present with tenderness, appreciating, you know, the beauty, the poignancy. Even in, in the sadness, there's a sense of being fully present and alive in it. Kind of like really opening to the wonder and the mystery rather than just, you know, let's get it all copacetic and keep it as comfortable as we can. And when a big change comes, maybe I'll be ready for it. It's just this. 
just this. It really, so I just want to end with this poem that expresses that to me from Hafiz. Deepening the wonder. Death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity. Deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks, and as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. So a half an hour for practicing. <laughs> 